Hello, I'm Tristan Miller, and this is Positive and Negative, a podcast about the intersectionality of mental health and the arts. Today's guest is Janet Varney. She is an actor, improviser, and podcaster. You may recognize her from the show Legend of Korra, where she plays the titular role. Janet lives with a depersonalization condition as well as anxiety and depressive issues. Here she is talking about how to live successfully with a chronic condition. Um, I think that what I've been very lucky to have and what I would encourage anybody who's going through this kind of stuff to try and cultivate, and I know that's so hard, especially if what's going on is chemical, but to, to really cultivate this idea that you don't want you want this feeling to stop but that doesn't mean you have to want your life to stop you can just hold on to whatever tiny little grain of hope that there is something on the other side and that things are constantly changing nothing is consistent that's scary but it also means that um that this thing that you think you can't continue to live with you may not be able to continue to live with but there are always new advances happening. And if you, if I always would say to myself, I, I, I don't want to die. I want to feel good. This podcast is brought to you in part by Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash Tristan J. Miller to support this program as well as others like it. I would like to thank Billy Conahan for use of the track To Be or Nah off of his album Leaping with Intent to Fly. It's available on Bandcamp and iTunes and other fine online realtors. It's Mental Health Awareness Month. It's May. I'm doing a charity show in New York City at Artifix at 8 p.m. on May 25th, featuring a lot of excellent folks who have spoken up about their mental conditions. It's a comedy show, so show up and laugh if you would like. Tickets are available on eventbrite.com. The show is called Be Well, a mental health charity show. We have two excellent headliners of Emily Winter, who will be featured as a guest on this program this month, as well as Aparna Nancharla, who is a fantastic stand-up comedian. I hope to see you there, as well as other places around the net. Okay, enough from me. Let's get to Janet. Hi. Um, Hi. <laughs> uh, so you grew up in Arizona, right? I sure did. I did yeah. in Tucson. How, how? What was? What was that like? Just nice, easy, <laughs> low ball question. <laughs> Uh, well, it was, it's a very complicated answer. No, um, okay. it was, uh, <laughs> it was, uh, it was nice. You know, it was a kind of a, it's uh, Tucson is, um, sort of a small ish city, but it's, it's not an insignificant, uh, size. I mean, I think when I was growing up, it was somewhere around 300,000 people. It's, mm-hmm. <clears throat> I'm sure it's grown since then, but actually even just kind of the, the, the footprint of it is probably what's growing. You know, it's one of those cities that it, it's nice because it's, it's bordered 
on almost all sides by mountain ranges so it's not a city that's just going to sprawl forever but certainly there are other like phoenix for example is something that just kind of continues to add on add on add on whether it's called mm -hmm. different areas or not uh tucson is a bit limited in in the fact that at a certain point you just sort of hit mountains and then that's it so yeah. um it's 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 <laughs> yeah, got so it's got it's built in yeah, it's got its kind of tangential little mini cities as well, but it's I it, it it I guess what I'm trying to say is it doesn't it hasn't changed very much since uh -huh. when I was a kid there. Um uh so, you know, when I go back and visit, there's a lot of of stuff that just feels very much the same to me. It's not like, you know, people for example who I know who live in, you know, Atlanta or Austin or places that have really had these kind of booms sometimes mm -hmm. booms and busts and booms again or mm -hmm. you know these in incredible increases in traffic and stuff um they say like oh my god i go home and it's like not even the same place and you know all my favorite places are gone or whatever and and uh this is not this is not that um mm -hmm. i think the 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 cool thing about that is that it definitely you know when i go home it just sort of washes over me like all of these multi layers of memories from from when I lived there. But I only lived there lived there till I was seventeen, and then when I graduated from high school, I I moved away and uh, mm. and went to school in northern Arizona for like two and a half years, and then I moved to San Francisco, and and I've been a Californian uh, ever since. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing. And you you grew up Mormon, right? Uh, yeah, that's kind of a mischaracterization. Not that it oh. actually is more of an oversimplification. I, I know that's probably out there. Listen, I don't look at my Wikipedia page because I'm just afraid of what <laughs> well, is <I> there. Uh, <laughs> so hopefully at some point, um, some maybe it can be you, Tristan. You can take on uh, mm -hmm. the new you, uh, correcting the nuances of what that means. Sure uh, thing. My dad, who was an atheist, had primary custody of me. So uh. I in in no way would I say I was raised as a Mormon. That being said, my mom mom had custody of me on Sunday so I certainly was expected to go to church with her and did for much of my childhood okay. uh I absolutely was very clear that the second I moved to NAU I would not participate in any way shape or form with anything related to the church all due respect to it you know I have very mm -hmm. um mixed feelings about the the church but uh, rest assured none of those mixed feelings are like i think some of it might be true that's not the case at all <laughs> sure, sure. um uh i i just have you know i i've had some very you know i have family who's mormon and i have very positive um i've had very positive experiences with the sort mm -hmm. of you know community of of mormons um but that's that's not you know those beliefs are not something i ever i ever embraced it's just not mm -hmm. for me um, but I've seen it do wonderful things for, you know, members of my family and stuff. So, uh, but yeah, so, so I, I, I certainly went to church, you know, I know a lot of the songs, uh, there's a lot of stuff yeah. that I, you know, am now will, will be told by people who were Mormon longer. They'll say stuff about the tenets of the religion and I will just be flabbergasted. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I will say like, oh, I don't remember ever learning that, you know, sure. so. I'm not an expert by any stretch of the imagination, but yeah. So I, I did go to church and um, uh, when when I couldn't get out of it, which was mm -hmm. you know which was pretty it was pretty enforced that I go to church, and I was yeah. certainly bad. I mean, I definitely was baptized, so I'm on the roster. I still yes. have missionaries yep. who find me and knock mm -hmm. on the door and stuff, and just in case, bless them. Yeah, bless yeah. them. <laughs> There's still a chance. Listen, yeah. there's always a chance. Who knows? I could t I could turn this whole thing around and realize that it's yeah. that how how wrong I've been. But I, I don't see that happening. Uh, when did your folks get divorced? 
they split up when I was really young. I don't really yeah. have any memories of them together. Um, oh. They were separated for a really long time. They, I don't think they were in a hurry to actually go through the process of divorce, not because they thought they were going to get back together, but just because it was probably a headache. And yeah. um, they were both still, you know, very much in touch with, e- with each other with respect to, you know, mm-hmm. my upbringing and all that kind of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. So, but yeah, I, I was, however young I was, when they separated, I think even before they officially separated, they were sort of taking turns being at the house. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't even yeah. before my mom even got her own apartment. I think it was, it's significant that I, that I really just don't. I think I have one memory kind of very vague of my parents still being together. And it's when we came home from somewhere and our house had been broken into. Oh no. <laughs> so that's like the only... <laughs> <laughs> I kind of remember them both standing there at the front door as we realized that the door had been broken. Oh, and wow. like that's and that's I have not I got pretty much nothing else. Maybe maybe an occasional memory of like sneaking in to like listen to the beginning of Masterpiece Theater when I was sure. really little. But also my dad watched that by himself, so I don't know if mm-hmm. I've superimposed my mom onto that memory or not. Uh-huh. Um is were you always interested in acting? Like if you're trying to watch Masterpiece Theater as a kid or when did that start? <laughs> you know what? I don't know what that was about. I, I can't I wish I could say that I was super uh I wish I could yeah. say I was I was an Anglophile even then. Uh-huh. Um I think there was just something very comforting. I mean it's kind of the same principle as uh being a little kid and 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 your parents having people over or you know being a little kid and sleeping at my grandparents house and my family being still up while I was asleep I I, that that feeling of being safe in a room in the dark while you can sort of hear the people you love still talking I think that's it's that same kind of idea that I I associate the beginning music of masterpiece theater as being this very calming thing that I mm-hmm. think I liked to kind of go out and <laughs> and listen to knowing I wasn't supposed to and then kind of crawl you know because yeah. I could go in and enter the room they were watching in from behind so they wouldn't see that I was sort of like bellying up like I was in Vietnam uh, <laughs> on the floor and then sort of inching back out at some point uh, mm-hmm. when I felt myself kind of falling asleep <laughs> um, <laughs> So yeah, but listen, maybe it really laid an egg. I don't know. Maybe yeah. it maybe it did kind of make yeah. a make a mark. But I, I did I did enjoy performing, and and mm-hmm. I don't I don't know why my parents knew that I should that they wanted to send me to a magnet. I mean, I went to public school, but it was a magnet school that was you know mm-hmm. sort of with an emphasis on the arts, and uh, I guess they just knew I was a ham. I don't know. <laughs> At sure. five years old, I don't remember saying, you know, mother, father, it's very important to me to attend a facility that allows me to express my, you know, but I definitely tried out for the play in first yeah. grade. Uh, so. Sure. And that's when you got your first taste? That's that? when I got my first sweet taste, Snow yeah. White. Snow very good. White. That's perfect. Yeah. Um, and you pursued it uh, through college, right? I yeah. did. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I. I was I think I was undeclared for my freshman year of college. I wasn't mm-hmm. I don't think I was actually that that convinced that I wanted to do theater, but I also was totally aimless in every other way, so I sure. eventually sort of, you know, was like, "All oh, right." And so then <laughs> I declared a theater major. Ain't that always the case? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wasn't, um, but you know, it's not some people really have that, you know, they they have that direction and drive even if it changes. Um yeah. and a, and a lot of the the theater majors you know when I came in as a sophomore 
Um, and I think I tr- auditioned. I may have taken a, one class in my freshman year, mm-hmm. uh, but not but was undeclared and then sort of begrudgingly decided, mm-hmm. like, mm, I guess I should learn how to juggle. <laughs> Uh, which Smart. I never did. I, I've, I've, I've never been able to master juggling. Okay. I won't ask you to on this audio medium. I've, I appreciate it. Wait, no, I'm doing it right now. Oh, wow. Guys, it's I got it. Folks. I got it. It happened right here. You heard it here. <laughs> and you, uh, you started doing improv as well. And how did you get into that as well as acting? Well, I'll tell you what. Yeah. I did not do improv, actually, until I was um, pretty much... Like I was sort of in the in the in the dying gasps of my time at SF State in San Francisco mm-hmm. when I started playing around with improv uh, a little bit, and and it was really because um, my friends that I that who who I had met in at SF State through the theater department had uh, decided they wanted to form some sort of a sketch and improv troupe, and they approached me about it, and I was very reluctant I was like I don't do improv I've never done improv I don't mm-hmm. I have not done much really even comedy outside of just you know funny plays that someone would cast me in <laughs> sure so uh it wasn't it was one of those things where it sort of matched it checked all the boxes for me but it was also maybe because it checked all the boxes for me that was scary and so I had mm-hmm. just avoided it in case I was bad at it or something sure. um so it wasn't until I was in my early 20s that I really started to um get into to improv and sketch and stuff and then that's you know what ended up sort of pushing me back into performing and stuff and and when is probably responsible for where I am now. I guess. Yeah, that's great. Um, how did you start uh, voice acting? Because I think a lot of people know you from that more so than the sketch and improv. I assume. Yeah, but but yeah, the the voice acting stuff was just a product of being down in L.A. and having uh you know having agents. I wish it were mm-hmm. more romantic, but it was <laughs> you know I had sure. I had agents. I had a commercial agent and I had a theatrical agent and my um I had friends who were auditioning mm-hmm. for cartoons and stuff and I said you know I would love to to do voiceover that would be kind of that would just be so cool but I don't know what that world is like and I wouldn't know how to really get into it and and then I just had um a commercial agent who they also had a voiceover department and he okay. also oversaw that and he was he's a wonderful person and became a, a pal. And, uh, and so he sort of pointed me in the direction of, you know, well, here's a coach you can work with and, you know, mm-hmm. we'll start sending you out for auditions. And so that's really how that happened. I, the Nickelodeon stuff w- was, I think, born out of, um, that department, the casting world of Nickelodeon really does keep its kind of finger on the pulse of comedy because of so many fun and high energy projects that they do so they tend to hire both for for animation and live action they hire a lot of comedians and so that's how I had come on their radar and uh and and they brought me in for Legend of Korra and I and and that was not something that I would have in any way expected to get Mm -hmm. I think I thought if I get anything it will be you know some goofball crazy high energy <laughs> yeah, sure. weird spongebobby kind of show and mm-hmm. and so i i you know i got really 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 lucky to yeah. to end up with something that you know i ended up believing in so deeply on on more of a emotional level you know 
Yeah, that that's wonderful. And as much as like it's not, you know, you said it wasn't romantic, but it's also very nice to hear like, yes, there was a series of logical steps and a progression that a career has. So you can sure. like work to- towards something and that's okay too, you know, because that's think a good point. Yeah, we have a lot of ideas of like, you know, things just kind of happen and you have breaks where it's like, yeah. no, you can just work really hard too. And that that's also right. works. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'm glad that that resonated uh, with you. And um, this is like a terrible segue, but Ooh, good. Uh, yeah, just clunk, 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 clunk. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> one of the themes of Cora is uh, her sexuality and that sort of thing. And did mm-hmm. that resonate with you? And did you? I, I don't know the story of like, were you involved with any sort of push for that, or was it literally just here's your job, here say these lines, and this happens to be part of it as right. well? Uh, it was. It, I, it, I wish I could say that I had, you know, some some <laughs> sure. large hand in it. Um, I well, I don't wish that because then that would be t- detracting from from Mike and Brian, the creators of the show, who are who are brilliant and kind and just two mm-hmm. really, really, really quality human beings. Who I just, you know, I just. Uh, I, I like them so very much uh, and they are it's I've learned I learned so much about engaging with fans and um, kind of how to be uh, to how to act with integrity with as far as your own vision goes and, mm-hmm. and kind of how to navigate all of that stuff I, I was you know I was right there when they were doing all of that and and mm-hmm. so I think they really um, they set such a great example for me as I was kind of coming into a place where I was going to have more interaction, more social interaction with with people who, you know, were, were familiar with me and wanted to talk about something that they had seen me do or heard me do mm-hmm. um, and, and doing Comic-Cons and all that kind of stuff. Um, they did, they certainly, uh, they did, they absolutely did talk to Seychelle and, and me about kind of where they saw that that final season going and we were so they did ask us how we felt about it and sort of you know wanted our feedback and stuff and we were both uh very very enthusiastic about it and, and very on board and so whether or not that would have changed anything I, I I don't know but they but they did they did tell us before it mm-hmm. happened and and we both said we thought that that was wonderful and that it made sense to us and you know from a from a storytelling perspective it made sense to us and that we were super on board for it that's great i'm, I'm glad to hear about that um and also when you were younger you were diagnosed with a deep personalization disorder yeah it's i mean it's so funny it's i, I don't <laughs> know how that process you know it's not like it <laughs> that i know of it's not like it goes into some giant file cabinet that you know someone refers to later on that yeah. <laughs> you know well they filed me away in the in 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 the giant warehouse of people with mental disorders yeah the um, indiana jones style that's well, right we have that's right stephen fry over here and we that's have yeah. right mm-hmm. exactly uh but in terms of you know how i how i came about feeling like i understood and you know some of that is you know unless you're I, I don't know. I'm not an expert on this, but I would imagine that unless you are in a place where, you know, for example, you're confined or you're hospitalized or there's a situation mm-hmm. in which, you know, or you're on trial and somebody has to yeah. officially <laughs> log some document saying, well, this person, you know, I'm diagnosing this person as such. Uh, mm-hmm. f- for so many of us, it's really just about finding 
you know, going through something and, and not knowing how to label it and not that labels are that important all the time, but I think when you have something that feels very scary and mm-hmm. untethered and, and indefinable, that's makes it more terrifying. And so when you can find somebody who can listen because the brain is still such a mystery, it's not like they can, yeah. you know, they, they did a blood test and they figured out I had this, you know, it's, yeah. it's, um, that that it is something that really is it's a two-way street you know you have to try to describe how you're feeling and and what what qualities you can assign to whatever it is that you're going through and then you know the person that you're seeing sort of has to hold in trust that you you are accurately describing it or that you you know what i mean there's just it's such a it's such a messy muddy uh, yeah. nebulous thing and those symptoms can change over time and then you get a different mm-hmm. diagnosis. I mean I have friends who've been diagnosed with five different things over the course of 10 years you know sure. because they're seeing different people and and they're trying medications that maybe are or not working and mm-hmm. uh, but for me you know I I had this person that I saw when I was really in the thick of these these experiences that I was having who really kind of for me hit the nail on the head and and then after the fact she sort of told me like well this would you know we would sort of describe this as this and Mm -hmm. so that was that was her that was sort of where she came at it she she kind of ended up she asked me a lot of questions that presupposed certain qualities about what I was experiencing that I I was like yes yes oh my god Mm -hmm. yes that too yes and you know so when we had kind of crossed all those things off the list she said well that's what I would you know that's what one would normally call a a sort of a depersonalization and displacement disorder Mm -hmm. which is you know kind of falls under the umbrella of depression and anxiety and Mm -hmm. um you know is 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 typically treated with you know therapy and perhaps the same kind of drugs that you would treat somebody who's just having straight panic attacks or mm-hmm. somebody who's you know who's just very very depressed it's you know it runs the gamut and as you know things are constantly yeah. changing and people yeah. are constantly inventing new ways of trying to attack that stuff yeah absolutely how would you describe um if you don't mind uh the experiences that you had for anyone who doesn't know exactly what depersonalization means Sure. Well, my, my main, um, what, what seemed like the main trigger, I, I certainly had a couple of these things happen to me, uh, before my freshman year of, of college. But I think when you, when you start looking for various variables that kind of line up together to really put something into full effect like to pull it mm-hmm. right into the forefront of of your psyche um i you know i was away from home for the first time i mm-hmm. had sort of overcommitted to work i was taking a photography class so it was a lot of time in the dark yeah. room developing pictures but then i also Oof. had sort of auditioned for two different one acts so i had rehearsals and i was memorizing stuff and knowing that i was going to go back on stage when i hadn't done that um for uh you know the the Mm -hmm. full year before then i hadn't been performing as a as a as a college student and um you know i was uh i i i think i was just and and then that age is very frequently right when when things like schizophrenia and you know those sort of late adolescent uh times that it's it's it sounds like you know doctor says 
a pretty typical time for stuff to kind of show its face a little bit more. Mm -hmm. um, I uh, I had <laughs> I had this like weird. I mean, listen, I don't know if it was a near death experience, but I I was on a it mountain. Felt that way. It, it certainly felt that way. I was on a mountain yeah. in um, in the spring, late spring. It was NAU up in Flagstaff gets snow sometimes even mm -hmm. into like May. Um, and, and the mountains is, you know, the San Francisco mountains uh, that are north of, of Flagstaff get a lot of snow. And so even if it's kind of balmy down in the valley, you can go up and be in snow pretty late mm -hmm. in the year as well. And uh, I had a friend in town and a group of us uh, decided we wanted to drive up into the peaks and um, like tromp around in the snow. And we were driving up in a couple of different cars and at a certain point, my friend who had driven up to hang out with us, her car essentially like gave out and just didn't want to make it up the snowy roads. Mm -hmm. So we pulled her car over and then those of us who were in that car just piled into the back of our friend Andy's pickup truck and we continued on up the mountain. And at a certain point he turned this really sharp, it's a series of switchbacks and mm -hmm. he turned this really sharp switchback and he was going up the steep grade and then the car just, the tire just stopped gripping and we started sliding backwards um, mm -hmm. and we were in the, the back of the pickup truck and just striding, sliding straight back would have just plummeted us off a cliff um, oh to our gosh. deaths. So, and, and one of us had the forethought to jump out and he, so he jumped out of the truck, back of the truck. And then the rest of us, Andy was trying to steer as he was sliding backwards. And so he was like, get down, get down. Cause we were blocking. Mm-hmm him being able to really see and so we got down on the bed of the truck and there was just this feeling of helplessness of like I don't I'm completely out of control yeah. of the situation I don't know what's going to happen and he was able to essentially wrench the wheel so that mm -hmm. he he went completely horizontal on the road and the back of the truck essentially just like tucked right up into the side of the mountain mm -hmm. um and and the car and the truck stopped uh -huh. And then we all got out and he was able to, you know, from that position, he was essentially, again, like horizontal to the road. He was able to turn it to the right and then we were able to go downhill and um, we walked most of the way back to <laughs> my friend's yeah. car. Uh, but, you know, it, yeah. So um, anyway, so that night, the best way to deal with that kind of experience is to smoke a bunch of pot. Um <laughs> So like I took, yeah. yeah, so I ended up smoking like, you know, I took like a couple bong hits or something off of yeah. um, our friend's uh, bong and in this house that we were all staying at. And then I, and like very quickly thereafter, I just had this total out of body experience where, you know, I was, um, I just felt like I was not in my body. I felt like mm -hmm. I was sort of a tiny, it was sort of like being John, John Malkovich where you sort of feel mm -hmm. like you're looking out through someone else's eyes sure. and you can sort of, you sort of feel like you're puppeteering yourself. Like, yes, I'm, yeah. I'm lifting up my hand and I'm moving my hand around, but there's also something about that that feels so existential that it's meaningless to me. It's like, why this hand looks vaguely familiar, but not really. And like, mm -hmm. there's just sort of, you know, which is, I think an experience that people smoking pot can have sometimes and whether they let that get to them or they just decide to like ride with that feeling or what have you, um, maybe depends on where, what else is going on with you in your life or yeah, what you're sure. looking for in an experience. But that was certainly not something that I was looking for or wanted. And, um, <laughs> yeah. I just couldn't wait for it to be over and it was terrifying, just terrifying. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was like I fell asleep and then 
um, I woke up feeling okay the next day. And then I think the next time after that, that I tried to smoke pot because I was like, well, that's, you know, when you tell someone that happens, they're like, oh, that's just like you had a bad trip. Yeah. Like, don't worry about it. That's not going to yeah. happen every time. And then I did it again. And then it happened again. And whether I brought that on by being afraid it was going to happen, who knows? Mm-hmm. Probably, you know. <laughs> sure. um, and then, but all of that happened right around finals and stuff. And so then there was just like this night that I was lying in my dorm room and I was completely stone cold sober and it just happened to me. Oh, wow. Uh, and then that just started happening to me all the time. I would have these mm-hmm. horrible out of body experiences and I thought I was going crazy. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I just had a sense of like, I, I can't, I won't be able to stay alive like this. I can't live like this. Mm-hmm. And um, and so when I went home for the summer, uh, I started seeing a shrink and she was like not great at, yeah. you know, I'm sure she was fine, but she sure. she just said like, oh, you're having panic attacks. And that, yeah. that just didn't feel like, that didn't feel right to me. I was like, really? I had a panic attack where for 48 hours, I felt like I was floating outside <laughs> my body <laughs> and I couldn't eat and I couldn't yeah. like, really? That's a panic attack. Okay. Um, uh-huh. and so, you know, that didn't really resonate for me. And, and then, um, I went back up to, for my sophomore year and, and went looking for a therapist up in Flagstaff and my roommate, one of my roommates at the time was a social, um, a social work, uh, major. Mm-hmm. And he was working his, he had like an internship with a therapist. And so it was very, very kind of fortuitous and, you know, sort of serendipitous feeling Mm -hmm. that he was like you know I think you should talk to Diane she's really terrific I told her a little bit about you she really wants to meet you and and so I went in and saw her and 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 within the first time I I talked to her she um Mm -hmm. was able to recognize these things that I was going through and she started asking me these questions like does it get worse after you eat you know does it this Mm -hmm. does it that and eventually when we kind of got to me saying yes a million times she said okay well the reason that I'm able to diagnose this the way I that I am or um that I can identify this stuff is it's very it's actually quite rare but uh I had it when I was your age oh wow and so I just felt like you know thank you universe like how is this happening and she um she worked in conjunction with a psychiatrist because she was a therapist but didn't prescribe stuff and so she had me seeing I was seeing her and I was seeing her partner um Mm -hmm. and and then cooperatively they put me on a really low dose of Prozac and Mm -hmm. um and and those experiences entirely went away now (laughs) they were replaced with (laughs) by like (laughs) six months of being on Prozac I was I dropped out of school I was like I think I had I think because I had this sort of ADD as well from from when I was little and stuff um I think it activated this uh attention deficit situation I was I was uh on Prozac and and you know I was able to like star in this play that I was sort of on stage for in every scene and I fell in love and I you know was um really happy and and he and I moved in together and we uh and and the next semester was getting ready to start and I signed up for all these classes and I had also two part-time jobs on top of that and I was really overcommitted and I couldn't focus on anything really and but you also don't I didn't really care (laughs) (laughs) and I remember I just had this night where I woke up in the middle of the night with this just amazing epiphany where 
I mean, I remember feeling high from this realization. I like got up and was like pacing around the living room again. Thank you, Prozac. Mm-hmm. Got up and was pacing around the living room, and I was think- thinking to myself, I could drop out of school. Like no one's uh-huh. in charge of me anymore. I don't need to go to school. <laughs> sure. I can just drop out. Like why am I making this such a an issue? I'll just go mm-hmm. drop out. And I, I got up the next day and just went and dropped out of all my classes oh my God. and just and can just continued working um, on my jobs and stuff. And then uh, and then I and then the guy that I was living with and I started talking mm-hmm. about moving to San Francisco because he was graduating. Um, mm-hmm. So I was in the first semester of my, my junior year and he was graduating that winter. And uh, and again, because I had this, you know, uh, I just had this sort of like yeah let's do it like why would i and and to be honest i'm really glad for that i mean i don't i don't regret any of that at all i was uh, again i was you know i certainly was still feeling emotions i wasn't like emotionless Mm -hmm. but i think it did i did have a sort of a fearlessness that i had had never had in my life before and part of that was the the release from this year of you know, just feeling kind of tortured by what I was going through. And so, you know, I don't know if I would have made that move had I not had all of those experiences. And I'm so glad that I did move to San Francisco. Uh, And when I moved to San Francisco, I went off Prozac and I was fine. I didn't have any experiences with um, this deep with depersonalization. And then a couple of years later kind of came back and, um, you know, I had to kind of meet me i had to re-meet it and then like yeah. re-get to know it and prozac did not work for me that time um mm-hmm. i just kind of had to uh at that time i think i sort of had to like grit my teeth through through Oof, some of the that's stuff rough. i was going through and yeah seeing a therapist and and then it sort of you know uh a lot of that was just like going through getting to know certain triggers and and getting mm-hmm. to know what it might be like to not let it control me not feel like Mm -hmm. it had more power than i did so there was a lot of a lot of work that i did um that i that i didn't do the first time around because the prozac worked so well so quickly sure um so so that was i think a really important stage as well it was very hard Mm -hmm. and scary but it was a really important stage um to go through because i think that that did help me understand that I could also deal with it on my own Mm -hmm. um, rather than just taking a pill. And, uh, and so, and then, and then that's really kind of what, you know, that's sort of been an ongoing relationship Mm -hmm. to depression and anxiety. And there was a period when it just kind of became panic attacks. It wasn't really depersonalization. There was more of like just waking up in the middle of the night already out of bed because your heart Mm -hmm. is pounding so much. So I've had a lot of, different symptoms so i i i've had i've had a nice cross section so (laughs) a lot of different people i meet that have that have had challenges um with Mm -hmm. with their with their mental health and well-being um i can relate on a lot of levels Mm -hmm. which i you know i'm i'm glad about because i know for me it was really nice to feel understood and um and far less scary to feel like oh this is written down somewhere already then Mm -hmm. i you know that feels like then I'm not just making this up in my very special, very broken brain that yeah. no one will be able to fix, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Has it ever gotten in the way of your, like, um, professional life? Like, in making things and being as creative as you are? 
Uh, yeah, for sure. I um, <laughs> sure. I had a bike accident in, I guess, oh, gosh. the end of 2012 or 2013, um, around the same time that um, my poor little sweet, wonderful kit- kitty that I had had mm-hmm. for 16 years mm-hmm. um, died. And sure. I think the combination of those two things happening at the same time just totally triggered the depersonalization again. Mm-hmm. And at the time I was working um, every day, and I think this was also a part of it, I was working uh, at a, every day at a HuffPost Live, which is the Huffington Post's online kind of yeah. news network. And it was a huge departure for me professionally, but I was mm-hmm. really, um, very, very aggressively recruited, and uh, and I really drank the Kool Aid. Like they had it. Yeah. They pre- what they presented to me was this kind of really exciting, like, oh, I'm going to be able to. It was something totally new, and it kind of combined a bunch of different things that I was interested in. But anyway, it was very weird because suddenly mm-hmm. I was going into an office every day, and uh, I had not had that for many years. So mm-hmm. be- between that and then you know getting run off the road by a bus and hitting a wall and going to the emergency yeah. room and like chipping yeah. my teeth and all that kind oh, of stuff gosh. and like you know uh and I then, imagine that's stressful yeah and then my cat which is sounds small but for me it was really mm. the first significant like day-to-day loss that yeah. i ever had Absolutely. um and and HuffPost live was as is suggested in the title a live show yes so when you are you know live and you can't escape that that really mm-hmm. kind of triggered the depersonalization yeah. for me so um i had to sort of take uh, i had to take leave and i was also working on Sketchfest. and so mm-hmm. wh- what ended up happening was i just didn't ha- i was just wasn't i didn't have once i was okay which took a yeah probably three weeks of sort mm-hmm. of some some d- deep diving into how and why is this happening to me again um mm-hmm. i ended up having to leave to go to, to Sketchfest anyway which is always part of like the contract that i was under and then mm-hmm. it just didn't end up working that for me to go back i had too many other work projects going on and it just didn't make sense to give that much of my time to to them but yeah um but yeah it was very scary i mean it was again yeah. whenever that stuff resurfaces you know and that's obviously just to go back to the Cora thing for a second um I I I strongly strongly related to this idea of like oh you go through something terrible and then you feel like you've gotten on the other side of it and then it's still present and in your you know moments where you become vulnerable it 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 becomes very loud again and it starts to feel untenable and all that kind of stuff. And yeah. I, I so, so empathize with people who, you know, are like, well, I, I had this experience and then I worked really hard and then I got past it. And then all of a sudden I wasn't past it again. And mm-hmm. that feels like a failure and all of those complicated feelings that, that come along with, with PTS and, and stuff like that. I've, I've just been there. So when people feel like they're quote unquote relapsing or whatever, you know, yeah whatever word you assign um, that that you allow yourself to feel like you're slipping backwards. And it's really important to me for people to know, um, including myself, that that's not what that is. That's not slipping mm-hmm. backwards. It's not a relapse. It's not, that's just part of what happened to you. And it's mm-hmm. not, um, it doesn't have to be your enemy, you know? Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. And that's really good to know. And um, what, as we're kind of wrapping up here, what, would be your biggest uh, piece of advice for someone who is facing these kinds of challenges and trying to balance life and work and everything? Um, I think that uh, number one, I, I think 
I, you know, I have friends that have killed themselves. Um, I oh have gosh, I'm sorry to hear had, that. oh, well, I mean, I mean, I know not to like underwrite it like, <laughs> oh, it's no big deal. <laughs> but I mean, you know, that's something yeah. that I think our culture is, you know, we sort of have these flare ups, right? Where people that we mm-hmm. look up to that we think of as being highly successful. I mean, last year was a very weird, hard year um, just from even, you know, even just these kind of cultural icons yeah. um, uh, that, that suddenly were offing themselves. Um, I think that what I've been very lucky to have and what I would encourage anybody who's going through this kind of stuff to try and cultivate, and I know that's so hard, especially if what's going on is chemical, but Mm -hmm. to, to really cultivate this idea that you don't want, you want this feeling to stop but that doesn't mean you have to want your life to stop. You yeah. can just hold on to whatever tiny little grain of hope that there is something on the other side and that things are constantly changing. Nothing is consistent. That's scary. But it also means that um, that this thing that you think you can't continue to live with, you may not be able to continue to live with. But there are always new advances happening. And if you... if I always would say to myself, I, I, I don't want to die. I want to feel good. Yeah. I just want to feel good. I want to be here. I want to be around. You know, I want, I know what it feels like to feel good. And if you know that you felt that before, and that's what breaks my heart about people in my life who've had, you know, chemical clinical depression where they just, they, they can't hold on to the, the, the feeling they know they've had of this kind of pure yeah. feeling of joy um i totally i mean i just would never be angry at anyone for taking their own life because if you're at a place where you're killing yourself d- no don't like if you if for yeah. anybody who for anybody who loses someone to suicide i know how easy it is to want to go to anger but like don't waste your time if you can because if you think you can get into the mind of somebody who's taking their life you're wrong you're just wrong yeah um you can't that's not a natural genetic way for a species to be we're not Mm -hmm. naturally genetically predisposed to commit suicide so if you think like well i can imagine being sad enough to want to die and i think i would just tough it out it's just not that simple um i just have tremendous empathy for people who do that and and of course the deepest empathy for the people who are who remain and who Mm -hmm. process those feelings but just try to hold on to that feeling of i know i have felt good and I know what that feeling is like, and I want to get back to that. I don't want to just end this in any way possible. I want to. My goal is to go to that bright point of light, and know that there are going to. I can reach out to people who will help me get there. You know. Yeah, that's wonderful, and I think a very good note to end on. I want to thank you very much for your time. I very much appreciate it. Oh, my it. pleasure, Tristan. If I really hope if this just helps one one other person, it's. Um, it's beyond worth, you know, disclosing this stuff. I have people who are like, wow, that's really, wow, gosh, I don't know if I would be able to, you know, if I were, mm-hmm. if I were in the public eye, I don't know if I would be willing to be honest with this stuff or, you know, it makes yeah. you very vulnerable. I'm like, dude, I don't know if you'd feel that way if you'd gone through it. Like if you know people yeah. who've gone through this stuff, you're like, please, whatever, like, does this help? Great. Yeah. Yes. Anything. Oh my God. I'm so weak. I'm broken. Blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. Does it help someone? <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. You know? And it's also, I think, very nice for people to see people who are living successful lives that have dealt with these kinds of things and yeah. they can know that you can be happy and successful in your field even though you're sometimes feel this way 
Absolutely. And like, just because, you know, you become one of those people doesn't mean that you don't also continue to feel that, you know, it's like every time I see Maria Bamford, I feel such a kinship with her and, you know, other people who are, who, who cope with this stuff, who are made it through. I mean, Owen Wilson, like that poor Mm -hmm. guy has been through so much and, and, you know, I'm, I'm just so, I'm always so relieved when somebody seems to be kind of getting through and, and, and making stuff and, and holding out and wanting to be better, get better, you know, not be better, but, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, it's, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't stop when, just because other people might now look at you as an example, you're still looking around for those other examples, you know? That's, that's good to know. Yeah. Uh, I, thank you very much. Um, My pleasure. I'm, My pleasure. Yeah. But you can try, you can try, you can try.